Hey there, thanks for joining us here at Compass Church, where we are making God accessible to everyone. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us as a church, head over to our website, compassbn.com. We hope this inspires you and gives you practical ways to live out your faith. Enjoy the message. So there is this urban legend related to training a dog that I have heard, and maybe you've heard it too, and it goes like this. If you have a dog that bites, the best way to train it is to bite it back. So it says that the best place to bite your dog is on the ear where they're kind of sensitive. So I am no dog expert, right? And I never claimed to be. I have two dogs and I have one really good dog and one really nasty dog. So the verdict on my dog training abilities is still out. And honestly, the fact that I own a spot bot to clean carpet stains is also a black mark on my dog training record. So please don't judge me. But, but even I think that biting your dog sounds like a terrible idea. Apparently though, not everybody got the memo. Check this out. A Florida man was accused of biting his girlfriend's four month old named puppy that was named Phoebe to teach the dog a lesson when the dog was acting up. Now she must have like nipped him or something when he was, when she was playing with him, but he got mad and so he jumped on her, held her down and started biting her ear. His brother was there with his girlfriend and they both tried to stop it and called the cops. And, and guess what the Florida man did? He bit his brother on the chest. Biter's gonna bite, I guess. So Phoebe's fine and the judge ordered the guy who did the biting not to have any contact with either his brother or the dog. And he actually went to jail on charges of animal cruelty and battery. The reason that things like this happen is that we as human beings have this sense of justice. It says this, it says, if you do something to me, I do the same thing back to you. Whether you call it revenge, retribution, punishment, or tit for tat, we all have this kind of innate feeling that if I'm wronged, it has to be made right by the equal suffering of the person who wronged me. There's actually another name for this. It's been around for thousands of years. It's called Lex Talionis. Lex talionis is, is a Latin phrase that is literally translated the law of retaliation. And it's kind of the summation, the collection of, of laws that have existed for thousands of years in all sorts of different cultures. It was a like a code of punishment that was actually meant to restrict the amount of punishment or compensation that the actual loss or to the actual loss that a person suffered. So it's probably best summed up in the Jewish Mosaic law or the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 24, 19. And this is what that says. Anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. So this is exactly where the saying an eye for an eye comes from. It's right here in Leviticus in the Old Testament. And this law, it does a couple of things. Okay, the first thing is that it guarantees that someone who is injured gets a form of justice. The, the person who, who, who does the injury will not go unpunished, but it also assures that the offender will not be punished more than their crime demands. And it does this in a very simple way. If you break someone's arm, your arm will get broken. Not worse, the same. Now, before you think that ancient Jewish you know, religious laws went around breaking arms, they applied an interpretation that would allow you to actually reimburse somebody with an appropriate amount of money rather than having to pay in physical pain. 
Not that that didn't happen though, because that was, that was a punishment that was actually meted out by people. Another purpose of the Lex Talionis, in Jewish culture at least, was to reduce crime by scaring people away from hurting others. Deuteronomy 19, 19 and 20 says that in this way, you will purge such evil from among you. Then the rest of the people will hear about it and be afraid to do such an evil thing. So when people hear about the severity of retribution, that they will get hurt if they hurt somebody else, then they're gonna be much more careful about doing bad things. Now, this is actually a very familiar principle. We hear this principle argued today in support of, you know, super harsh mandatory sentencing guidelines or people who are support in support of the death penalty. They say things like, we need people to be scared of the punishment so they don't commit the crime. So we need to make sure the punishment is really big. And that's how the thinking of this goes. And that's how, you know, the thinking went thousands of years ago. But there is even more to it than that in the Mosaic Law. It went further than just guaranteeing justice for victims or preventing crime through fear. It went a step further by ensuring punishment for violators. Look at Deuteronomy 19 and 21, how it continues. You must show no pity for the guilty. Your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The Jewish law demanded not only justice, but justice without mercy. And here we can see in Deuteronomy 19.21 that punishment was a priority. Now we also live in the tension of this today with some who want our justice system to prioritize rehabilitation for people. And then on the other side, there are those who want it to primarily punish the guilty. But rehabilitation was not a goal of the Lex Talionis law that was practiced by not only Jewish people, but by many people in the ancient world. And you've heard the saying, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. But the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, says otherwise. And that's the culture Jesus stepped into when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in our Iceberg series, we've been going through a specific part of his teaching where Jesus is he's challenging some deeply held religious beliefs and challenging some deeply held assumptions of people by, by holding them up against how his followers are to think and to live. He's doing some comparing and contrasting. And what he's doing really, he's pointing first to the tip of the iceberg of what people believe before revealing the larger part of what lies underneath the surface. And so in short, Jesus has been creating contrasts between the moral ethic of the world and the new kingdom ethic that his followers will live by. And in Matthew chapter five, Jesus confronts the law of retaliation head on, and he gives us a new kingdom ethic to live by. He says this in Matthew 5, 38. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So you've heard it taught in the law of Moses that if you are hurt by someone, you have the right and the obligation to hurt that person back. This law, we've covered it, but this law is actually repeated three times in the Old Testament. It's the basis for, for most criminal and civil law that exists even today. And everyone has heard this. Jesus' listeners were very familiar with this. And Jesus continues, But I say, do not resist an evil person. So the law of retaliation basically made it mandatory, according to the law of Moses, to get retribution and punishment. And Jesus says, 
You've heard it said to punish someone an eye for an eye. But I say, don't do that. So this is big because this is the first time that Jesus straight up contradicted something from Jewish law rather than just expanding on it or maybe explaining it better. And maybe maybe contradicted isn't the right word. Maybe a better way to describe what Jesus did was to fulfill the law. I mean, that's what he said. Or maybe satisfied the need for it. But either way, what Jesus does here is really radical. Because not only did he completely reframe this massively impactful law, but Jesus lays out a whole new way of responding to those who hurt us. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 22 that the entirety of the law hangs on this command. To love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And over the last few weeks, uh, we've been we've seen Jesus explaining kind of in practical and concrete ways what it means to love our neighbor in his kingdom as his followers. You should get caught up with that if you haven't seen it on our podcast or our website. But most of what we've talked about has been in how we think about our attitudes and our actions, anger, lust, caring for those who've gone through divorce. But Jesus is about to get real concrete on how we are to respond to people who hurt us. He continues, Matthew 5, 39. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, this is a familiar verse, and I know that it sounds like Jesus might be talking about violence here. Like, if somebody hits you, let them keep hitting you. But that's not really what Jesus is saying. That's not really what he means. Because when we look at the cultural and the historical context of what was happening in this world, we see this. Slapping someone was a massive insult, especially a dude. If you slapped a dude, because this was a very patriarchal society, right? And if you slapped someone, the law said that you would have to pay a fine that was even larger based on their position in society. And if you backhanded someone, that fine would be doubled because a backhand slap is even more insulting than a regular slap, I guess. See, Jesus here isn't talking about being assaulted He's talking about being disrespected and dishonored, insulted. And here, here's Jesus' first new kingdom principle of non-resistance. Honor those who insult you. See, loving others is more important to Jesus than being respected. And when we're insulted, we offer grace that goes beyond retribution and beyond expectation. And Jesus didn't just say this, Jesus lived it. Jesus was insulted. He was mocked and dishonored. And he didn't say a word to fight back or resist. And so after that, Jesus continues on with, with another concrete example of how his followers are, are to live. Matthew 5.40 says this, If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now, most men for centuries in the ancient Jewish world wore a shirt and then a coat to cover it, an overcoat. And the coat was actually a very valuable and important thing because often for people who were poor or didn't have a lot of resources, it was their only blanket or covering. A person's coat was such an important possession that the law of Moses actually protected a person from having it taken away from them in legal proceedings. Check this out in Exodus 22. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has, and how can a person sleep without it? A person's coat was kind of a, a somewhat, somewhat sacred and protected item, possession that was protected by the law. And Jesus says, 
that when you lose your shirt to someone who sues you, give them your coat too. Give them this legally protected, and for many, a possession that that kept them safe from the elements. Give them this possession. Give it to a person who has taken you to court. Giving up your coat to someone who is suing you, who is working against you, I mean, it would go against all sort of social customs. But that wouldn't be the most shocking thing to Jesus' listeners. Because what Jesus is basically saying is this. If someone sues you, just let them have all your clothes. He's saying, be naked. It would totally be shameful to be naked in public for a religious Jew. It would be humiliating. But Jesus paints this kind of rhetorical picture that says that it's better to be naked and ashamed than to retaliate against someone. And here's Jesus' second new kingdom principle of non-resistance. Walk around naked. No, I'm just kidding. It's this. Bless those who shame you. And Jesus didn't just say this. He lived it. When he was stripped and beaten, he was led naked through the streets to his death on the cross. And Jesus continues again with another concrete example of how his followers are to live this out in Matthew 5, 41. He says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. So anytime you talked about a soldier in first century Palestine, everyone knew you were talking about the Romans, okay? Rome was an occupying force in the region. They had conquered it. And the Jewish people, who were a conquered people, they once ruled the land independently, but now they were Roman subjects and they were treated like it. And according to Roman law, Roman soldiers had a legal right to force occupied people into compulsory work in the service of the Roman military. It wouldn't be hard for Jesus' listeners to imagine a soldier demanding that they carry his pack for a mile and offer him transportation. And Jesus says, if that happens, carry it two miles. Now again, Palestine was occupied by a cruel and violent Roman government. Any Jewish people who helped or supported Roman soldiers in any way were viewed as traitors. And demands like this were considered unjust infringements of their rights. But Jesus says, don't just submit to unjust demands, exceed them. If someone who has hurt you and maybe stepping on your rights needs help, help them twice as much as they ask. Jesus lays out his third new kingdom principle of non-resistance, and it's this. Surrender your rights for the good of others. And Jesus didn't just say this. He lived it. Jesus healed one Roman soldier's daughter He healed another Roman soldier's servant, and he healed another Roman soldier's ear when one of his disciples cut off that dude's ear with a sword. And Jesus laid down his rights when he stretched his arms out on the cross where he was crucified. He surrendered his rights for the good of others. And then there's one more example that Jesus gives, a concrete example of his kingdom ethic of non-resistance in Matthew 5, 42. Give to those who ask, And don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Have you ever seen someone on a corner with a sign asking for money and thought to yourself, oh my gosh, not again. Come on, dude. And you say that internally because you don't want to give them anything. But you also don't want to feel bad for not giving anything. So either way, you lose. 
Sometimes we'll switch lanes to get away from them, or we'll pray for that red light to turn green before we even get to the intersection so we don't have to be stuck right next to this person while we're waiting for the light to change. I think we all know what this feels like. Sometimes we just don't have anything to give. Sometimes we just don't want to give. Sometimes we're annoyed because if we have to, if I got to go work a crummy job that I hate to pay my bills, then this guy should too. But Jesus lays out a fourth new kingdom principle of non-resistance. Give when you can to those you can. And Jesus did this when he gave his life for us on the cross. Jesus calls us to live his kingdom into being in practical ways by being willing to put aside our honor, put aside our shame, put aside our rights, and put aside our resources in order to love other people, particularly others who've done nothing to deserve our love. He's calling us to active generosity that, that subverts and deconstructs the systems of our culture because of the presence of God's kingdom in our lives. And we can look at these things like I'm sure Jesus' listeners did and say that it's just not practical. It's just not a practical way to live. These things will never work in our world. And maybe not, but they work in his. And this is a new way of living for those for whom this world is no longer their home. The kingdom of God is their home. And that's us. We who follow Jesus become citizens of heaven, called to live by his ethics and his guidance, to love our neighbor as ourselves in impractical and extravagant ways, even when it's hard, even when it's counterintuitive. And really, all Jesus is doing is calling us to live like he did. Because Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. And then Peter continues, and he shares a hymn or a creed that the first century church must have memorized and shared and recited together in order to remember what Jesus did. And this is what it says in verse 22. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. The very reason you and I have experienced the personal love of Jesus is because he followed these exact principles of non-resistance. He suffered insults and dishonor. His clothes were stripped from him. He was left naked. He was forced by cruel authorities to walk to the cross. And he gave everything on that cross, more than anyone would have or could have asked or expected. And he did it for the good of others, for our good. Following Jesus is radically different than the life the rest of the world lives, but it's a full life. It's a life with an eternal quality that we get to experience because he did the same thing for us, to set us free from our brokenness and our sin. And he did that by going to the cross voluntarily where he died. So will you take up your cross and follow him in his way of loving others, honoring those who insult you, blessing those who shame you, surrendering your rights for the good and help of others, and giving whatever you can whenever you can? This is Jesus's way. Let's make it our way. 
Thanks again for joining us today. If you want to learn more about us as a church, get connected, need prayer, or anything else at all, head over to our website, compassbn.com.